Well, at times, uh, various times in pastoral ministry, I have been asked uh, occasionally, and perhaps this has perplexed you, is whether I or you or somebody, they ask me, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Have I committed the, un- the sin that's just unforgivable? And this is one of those passages, or the passage, Matthew 12, is a companion. You remember Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are a lot of times they parallel the same events. And so sometimes that's the reason we'll look over to Matthew if Mark says something, because we'll be able to glean something from the same event. But Matthew gives a little different perspective and vice versa. But the unpardonable sin is a, sometimes a very perplexing thing that somebody believes that they have done something or they have said something, and therefore they are somehow outside the bounds of God's forgiveness. And oftentimes it's in reading this passage that people are, get confused and want to know about the sin that's unforgivable or unpardonable. And if you look with me in our passage... Uh, I believe we can just put verses 28 and 29. Let's kind of zero in and get right to it. Uh, It says, Jesus said there at the conclusion of this, he says, Truly, he says, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, but whatever blasphemies they utter, they'll be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, you know, we're, we've been kind of walking through the first three chapters of Mark, and so you read it along, and you think, boy, what, uh, Mark doesn't, it, it just kind of comes on the scene, and you're thinking, where did this come from? Why is he bringing this up? Why has this issue been brought up? And as I said earlier, Ma- Matthew 12 is a companion. You don't need to turn there, but it's the same event, but it helps us understand where this came from, why he responded in the way that he did. And I'll just kind of paraphrase Matthew 12. You might want to jot a, a maybe in your margin or something, or it may have a note if your study Bible has it. But in this situation that Mark gives an account of, there's some details that Matthew gives us that are helpful. We're told that a man came to Jesus or was brought to Jesus who was both blind and mute. They brought him to Jesus for healing. You remember we've been looking from the first few chapters that great crowds are responding to Jesus' miracles, his healings, there's a great groundswell. At one point, uh, some friends brought this guy and had to lower him in the roof because they couldn't get in the door. And uh, so a lot's happening, a lot's happening. And parallel to that, the religious folks that are kind of in control of the uh, the power structure of Jesus' day, they're paying attention to this because their whole ability to be propped up is their support by the people. And if they see the crowd starting to move towards Jesus, well, they're going to get antsy and get concerned because they don't want to be in a place of unpopularity. They want to be the center of attention with the crowd. So you've got all these people in, uh, on the scene here. And so in Matthew 12, it tells us that Jesus proceeded to cast out a demon and healed the blind man. We can't get into the, that aspect of it. I just want you to see what provoked this statement that we read in Mark. Uh, instantly, this man began to heal. He spoke. He, um, the miracle, nobody disputed that. People acknowledged that this was a tremendous miracle that Jesus had performed. Everybody was happy except 
you know, that one crowd. We saw them back earlier. When, remember when Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath day, uh, the Jewish Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week, and they were all in an uproar. You would think they'd be excited because of this man that got healed, but they were more concerned about him breaking and doing that on the Sabbath. So again, they're looking for any little way that they can get him. And so they were, this was something that upset them. Now, go back to Mark. That just gave us some details that Mark didn't give us. And so these Pharisees are always kind of hanging on the outlying uh, ad. They're always kind of, you just kind of picture them kind of looking and watching from afar and listening. And they probably have their cronies in the group to make sure they pick up on something that Jesus says or some way to trip him up. Uh, in chapter 3, go back to verse 6, it says that the Pharisees went out after that uh, last encounter they had over the, the, uh, uh, over the man who was healed. Uh, it says in verse 6 that they, after they, they saw what he had did, they began to plan to kill Jesus. Pretty serious, pretty serious stuff that's going on. Now, I just want you to maybe just for a second get a little sense of what's happening in Jesus' life. Here you have these great crowds, and, and uh, it's from those great crowds that he called his apostles or disciples. We saw that last week. A lot of these crowds, as we kind of know from John 6, they really weren't into following Jesus because he was Messiah. John 6 reminds us that these great crowds, that's the picture of the feeding of the 5,000, they were only in it for what he could do for them. They wanted to make him king. So their motive, and it wasn't that they wanted to follow him because they acknowledged he was the Messiah. They just thought, hey, as long as we're getting free lunches, let the good times roll, right? You know, we'll stay with you. In fact, let's make him king. We kind of do that today. We like to elect somebody that promises us the most free stuff till we figure out we have to pay for it, Right? And usually that's us have to pay for it. But so you got these Pharisees pressuring him. You got the crowd pressuring. And if that wasn't enough, look at chapter Mark. We're still in Mark 3, and I, I won't spend a lot of time here except just to mention it. Look down at verse 20 and 21. Not only you got the crowds and these religious people, these Pharisees out to want to kill him and trip him up, and then it says, after this event that we're talking about, he went home, and the crowd gathered again. My goodness, there they are, so that they could not even eat. Now, you know, if you've got a big family or a little, you know, that's a big, you know, that's a problem. You know what, people, can't we even eat the roasts? <laughs> you know, they got a crowd, and they can't even eat. Now, notice what happens here, a little insight to his family and gives us some insight in what Jesus is dealing with. And when his family heard it, the crowd, the noise, all they couldn't eat, it says that his family, when they heard it, verse 21, they went out to seize him, to grab hold of him, for they were saying about Jesus, his family, he is out of his mind. His family thought he was crazy. Out of his mind. John 7 gives us a little, another insight about how his family looked at Jesus. That his brothers said, hey, if anybody wants to make themselves known, you need to go to uh, Jerusalem at, during the feast. Uh, because anybody, basically the cynicism, anybody that wants to be kind of 
popular needs to go where the people are. And they weren't saying that like they were giving him strategy. They were saying it kind of in an obnoxious way because John 7, 5 says, after they said, if you do these things and show yourself to the world, then it says in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So that gives you a little insight that of what's going on. You got crowds, you got Pharisees that want to kill him. You got his own family that questions whether he's a lunatic. He's crazy. So that's that's the scene of what's going on. But if you look back at verses 28 and 29 of Mark 3, you can go ahead and put that back up again. Jesus says, in that context, because they were saying that these miracles he was doing, he obviously is an agent of the devil, an agent of Satan. And he says, all sins will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness. They're guilty of an eternal sin. Now, the reason that's important is because rather than just going around and saying what the unpardonable sin is or says, you know, because I had this really horrible thought or I had this horrible fantasy or I did something before I became a believer or I, I remember, you know, a time when I really cursed God I didn't believe in God and there's all this host of things that sometimes come or that are part of our experience or something that maybe we did or thought about or maybe we took action against and it has nothing to do with any of those things. It's a very specific sin that was unique in this particular context. It's not criticizing uh, churches that are charismatic. It's not criticizing the gift of tongues for or against. I've, I've heard and grown up that, you know, uh, John MacArthur has committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because he brings out some critiques of some extremes in the charismatic Pentecostal world. Well, I might not agree exactly, but they're not blaspheming the Holy Spirit because they offer those critiques. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with a sin that you may have committed, no matter how heinous and repulsive and wicked and evil that sin was. Didn't we read that all sins will be forgiven? Is, is that in your Bible? So therefore, what exactly does Jesus mean by this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can never be forgiven? So with that, just this won't be long, but it's important to kind of work our way through this. So there's only two reasonings of what Jesus did in explaining how he could do it. One he has to be somebody who is sent from God, or secondly, he's an agent of Satan. That's what these religious folks that were critical of Jesus, that's what they were saying. In fact, if you look at verses 22 and 30, your version may have a little different, but the essence is they were saying, they were saying that the way the language is, is it was a continual, they were continually hurling accusations. They were continually accusing and slandering Jesus by spreading the news or spreading their opinion that Jesus could only do these things because he himself is demon-possessed. They kept saying it. That was kind of something they seemed to, you know, like politicians. Once they see an ad or something out there that's working, they'll poll the people and, ooh, that gets a good response, so let's keep doing that. Well, they, they saw that worked. 
Okay, people were, were kind of freaking out. Oh, we don't want to follow somebody that's a de- demon. And they saw that work, so they just kept kind of hammering that home because people were buying into it. And it's in that setting that Jesus says what he says. And what's interesting is his response is uh, a parable. A parable, and we're going to look at some parables in chapter 4 on in Mark. A parable and it's just a simple way to understand what a parable is. A parable is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. That's just kind of the easiest way to understand what a parable is. It's a story, but it has a, has a spiritual meaning. And so Jesus, in his answer, essentially says, do you really think Satan, uh, I mean, he might be evil, but he's not stupid. And Jesus gives this parable. Look at verse 27. I think... Again, we can put it on the screen there just for emphasis. I don't have so much points this week because the scripture is kind of what we're trying to follow the, the timeline here. Verse 27, and he gives this story showing it's illogical what they said. He said, but no one can enter a strong man's house, a strong man's house, and plunder his goods unless... That person first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house, okay? So he's saying that it doesn't make sense what you just said because everybody knows that internal strife will ultimately implode whoever or whatever the system is or the person. So you're saying that I'm an agent of Satan but yet I'm doing works that are countering the works of Satan. That doesn't even make sense. So here, here it is. He gave that verse about the strong man. <coughs> Satan, in this story, is the strong man, okay? His house, or palace, some translation, is the present world, okay? Satan is, is the strong man. The house is the pictured as the present world. His goods are property are the men and women whom he holds in spiritual darkness and uh, in bondage. Okay, That's the earthly story, spiritual meaning of what Jesus is getting at. But with the coming of Jesus, someone stronger than the strong man, Satan, has appeared and has conquered him. So Jesus is saying, your storyline doesn't make sense, because I am here to take hold and, and capture and conquer the strong man, defeat Satan. And by doing that, I am here on a mission to rescue those whom he has locked in darkness and in bondage of sin. So your premise doesn't make sense that I am a messenger or an ambassador or even maybe the devil himself. You see, the mission of Christ all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 was the first messianic promise of the coming of Christ. And it's when God told Adam and Eve in their rebellion and sin that he would send one who would crush the head. Actually, he's... God is speaking in that passage, Genesis 3. He's actually speaking, of course, everybody's hearing, but he's speaking to Satan himself. 
that there would be one who would come born of the seed of a woman. Remember that? Who would come and bruise or crush the head of the serpent. Now, I hope you don't get your theology from movies, but I realize that's unfortunate in our day and time because we, you know, there's a lot of movies out there, Young Messiah and all that, and they may have some value in some way. My problem is they borrow so much from imagination that are in the Bible, and I think it dilutes uh, biblical truth. That's my little free Siskel and Ebert review, okay? Um, but if you remember, if you saw, most of us have, saw the passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson, you know, before he went nuts, uh, made that movie, right? You remember in the opening scene when Jesus is praying in the garden? And you remember the first time you saw it when it showed the snake? And then all of a sudden he stomped on its head and there was that boom. And if you're like me, you jerked out of your seat, right? How many remember that? Well, I like that because that was, I don't know if that happened. But it certainly was a picture to what Jesus was sent to do that hearkened back to Genesis 3.15. That there's a new sheriff in town and Satan will be defeated. So do you see now when you see that in light of the context, he's telling these religious folks that are spreading this lie that he's an agent of the devil. And he says, guys, come on, you're smarter than that. It doesn't make sense. Why would Satan deliberately destroy his own kingdom by doing what I'm doing. It doesn't make sense. How can Satan cast out Satan? You're saying, in essence, if I'm of the devil, that Satan is destroying himself. It doesn't make sense. So what's happening here? Verse 28 reminds us, it won't be on the screen, but verse 28 um, says, All sins will be forgiven. But what is, I think verse 29 and 30, you can put up there. But Jesus says, if all sins are forgiven, all sinners can find forgiveness in God, then what is this catch in verse 29 through 30 where it says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin? What, how does, well just... Hit pause for a minute. Let me just make sure we are on the same page. And I reiterate this is because it, when we read this, it just we just hearken back to some of these false ideas we have about what the unforgivable, unforgivable or unpardonable sin is not. It's not murder, as heinous as murder is. It's not adultery. It's not suicide. It's not homosexuality. It's not rape. It's not child molestation. You just fill in the blanks. That is not, those are not the unpardonable sins. Now, grant you, they are not necessarily pardonable by the laws of our land. And there are some crimes that need to be punished to the full extent of the law. That's how a society functions. But we're talking about if all sins are forgiven... And I would speculate in a room like this, there's probably not any sin that has not been committed, or I would say at least thought about. And, you know, Jesus put that on par with actually committing the act. If any man or woman, if they lust in their heart towards another, they have committed the sin of adultery. If you covet it, talking about you've committed the sin of stealing your heart. Jesus ramped it up, we think, because, again, Jesus says out of the abundance of the heart... 
It's a heart issue. That's where we have the the problem. That's why we need a, a new heart. We need to be regenerated. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. We need a new heart that's made alive to God. But those things as... Again, we have our scale, and I know sometimes, and I, and I understand this, and I agree with this. All sin is sin, true. But even in the Bible, there are some sins that are worse than others. Stealing office supplies from your work is not quite as bad as going out and killing the 7-Eleven guy because he short, shorted you some money. Would you agree with that? All right, just one thought I'd throw that out there, and there's no issue I have with 7-Eleven, all right? They've been good to me, as long as their slurping machines are working and not sloppy. All right. You with me? I'm trying to give you a little breathing room here. This is, so what is that unpardonable? What is the sin that is unforgivable? It is specifically, Jesus says, a bla- it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, why was, why was it unforgivable against the Holy Spirit and not against Jesus? How? Because what they were saying and what Jesus is saying, they were saying that the power behind Jesus, his very essence of his very life and character is demonic. And by saying that, they are impugning and saying he is not sent from God. My friend, you reject Jesus being the sent one from God, there is no salvation. You catch what he, where he's coming from? Jesus said in, in Matthew 12 in the companion passage, he said, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's the working of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus being sent by God that they were impugning and rejecting Christ. So what the religious folks were saying is, look, Jesus, look, we... we we don't deny you're doing some interesting miracles. We don't deny that you've cast out this demon. And, and we don't deny any of that. In fact, remember when Nicodemus, in not so much a negative way, remember in John 3 when Nicodemus came at night and said, I know you must be a man sent from God because no one could do the miracles that you do unless they were sent from God. So obviously not all Pharisees. Okay, because Nicodemus was a big shot Pharisee. He said, look, we're, we're, you know, we recognize you're doing some, some tricks or, or even some phenomena. But we believe that your power, your origin is not from God. It's from Satan. Their sin, the unpardonable sin is that they were attributing to the devil what the Holy Spirit was doing in the life of Jesus. They didn't deny existence of the supernatural. They didn't deny the reality of the miracle. They simply said, out of the hardness of their heart and even spiritual blindness, and this is what sin will do to you. Sin and the hardness of your heart and rejecting God will lead you down a road in which you will be face-to-face with the goodness of and mercy of grace. And you'll be so darkened in your own heart because of the continual rejection, the continual running of the red lights, and, re- and not responding to the call of God and the, and, the, and the drawing of God, that you will actually look at the work of God of mercy and grace and love and say it is 
whether you say it literally or in your actions, it's not of God. It's of, I don't, you know, it's nothing, nothing I want anything to do. You reject God's sent one. Where do you go? Where do you go? What's plan B? Remember this. The impardonable sin is not some thing, action, life, whatever that you did before Christ, an ongoing sin that you're still mortifying and putting under the cross, the blood of Christ. Because we said all sin, God has forgiven us. But he spoke a direct, very specific word to these individuals that attributed what he was doing to the work of the devil and not of God. I couldn't help but be reminded of this, this thought of deliberately resisting the Holy Spirit's witness. You and I both know people that have consistently, deliberately rejected the work of God in their life. And I would never, ever say and never, ever believe this, that anybody is beyond the reach of God because God is not limited by that. But at the same time, if there is a continual, willful, I call it running the red lights, rejecting God, guess what? God, according to Romans 1, He'll leave you in your sin to deal with justice and eternity on your own merit. Put Romans uh, 1.18 up there. This is, I believe, what Paul is talking about where he says, The wrath of God is revealed, against, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice this. Who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? Suppress the truth. Every time I read that word suppress, I always think about, remember the little wind-up jack-in-the-box? You wind it up and the pops up. In order to get the little clown back in there, what do you do? You suppress him back in and latch the lid. You suppress it. It is a deliberate, willful. It doesn't mean days I'm just not trusting in the cross, the promises of God. It's not talking about the work of grace that's working and developing. It is talking about a person who has deliberately, intentionally looked at truth they looked at the word of the Lord. I don't mean the pages necessarily, but they've, and they have, they've just said, not only will I not buy into it, but I am going to make a determined decision that I want nothing to do with this. That by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. It's a willful, deliberate, and that's what Jesus is saying. To that person... There is no forgiveness because they are not looking and seeking forgiveness. It's not on the screen, but I'll just read on verse because you're familiar or if you have it marked. Not only do they suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. You've studied Romans, you know, that God's witness in the stars, the sky, the creation... It's not enough to redeem you, but it's enough to condemn you. Because it's 
God's word says, for they are without excuse because he is clearly, since the creation of the world, the things that have been made, he has revealed himself, so they are without excuse. And then he concludes that little part of Romans 1 in verse 21 about these who suppress the truth, who it is unforgivable, for although they knew God, that's not necessarily talking about they knew God in a relational commitment way. They knew God in the sense they knew that there was a God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but it says they became futile. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Even though you may have a good religious outer facade, but you have and are clearly living and moving down a path of just rejecting the purposes of God, the will of God, the person of God, rejecting all His ways. But yet today as you listen, as you listen, you find a pulling, you find a tension, you find a struggle even in your own as you sit there. Because you know, because the Holy Spirit is revealing and has revealed this, that you're not one who has made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. You have not received the gift of Jesus Christ where you enthrone Him figuratively by trusting in Him as a master, as the master in your life. Lord, sometimes we call it that. You're being pulled and controlled by all sorts of forces and people. And you struggle. And the path that you're on may be secretive. Nobody really knows. Because you've not made that first step in asking Jesus Christ into your life. And you may have bought in and thought, you know, I've committed the unpardonable sin and God could never forgive me. Jesus died for everybody, but if you knew what I did, if you knew what I am doing, I would be that exception. Put John 6.37 on the screen. Look at this verse. John 6.37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, Jesus said, I will never cast out. I will never reject. So no matter what you think you've done or what you contemplated doing, There's a promise there that says, all that come to me, Jesus said, I will will not reject you. Anybody that wants to come to Christ will come to Christ and Jesus will not turn you away.